You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we'll review the new project from Chicago rapper Rick Wilson and L.A. producer and multi-instrumentalist Terrace Martin. But first, Jim and I are walking down memory lane to recall our best experiences watching live music. Jim, you're going to start us off today, right? Greg, we were just comparing notes. It was it was devilishly hard for both of us to come up with only four each. We might have to do this show, I don't know, seven, eight times <laughs> a year, especially right now when we're jonesing on live music. I just wrote a piece about how much I am missing small, sweaty club shows for the New Yorker of all places. I'm going to start out, though, with a show that was anything but small. <laughs> it was massive. It was the biggest, most ambitious concert I've ever seen in my life. And I saw it when I was only a junior in high school, February 1980. Pink Floyd, after years of uh, absence from the concert stage, came out to perform The Wall in its entirety only a handful of times in the UK, out west in California, and at the Nassau Coliseum on Long Island. I was a Pink Floyd super fan. I uh, bugged and bugged and bugged my mom about getting tickets. We went to a ticket agency. Turned out to be a scalper that took my money, and uh, I never got tickets. But (laughs) then my cousin Douglas, my cousin who introduced me to all things great in music, came up with tickets. And me and a high school buddy and Doug and an older buddy of his, you know, he's probably three or four years older. But to me, he was so world-wise and cool, and that's why my mom let me go in the first place. You know, so Pink Floyd comes out, and they play the wall. They build a wall, massive wall, 30, 40 feet tall across the stage. They destroy the wall. You know, the entire concert is the album, and there's nothing left but big, huge styrofoam bricks filling the stage. They came out, and they did the last song on the wall, that little acoustic ditty, and that was it. I I was, you know, this disappointed, he said, holding his fingers tightly together, <laughs> that there were no other songs, you know, because I, I really wanted to hear something from Dark Side Animals or Wish You Were Here, but I had just seen the most amazing moment ever. Now, Cousin Doug, being older and, and world-wise, as I, I said, uh, you know, he had uh, perhaps some stimulation of the sort that you smoked, and I, I was way too square, even as a junior in high school, to partake. The experience itself was psychedelic enough, especially the high point for me. When the wall is built, there's a little intermission, and then uh, suddenly the lights go down again, and David Gilmour is on a crane. You don't know this, but it seems as if he's standing on top of this wall uh, and delivering that immortal solo from Comfortably Numb. And he's backlit, and his shadow goes across the entire Coliseum. You know, it was like, mind blown, young Jim. Oh my God, I will never see anything better than this. Certainly, I've never seen anything more spectacular. Pink Floyd, The Wall, in Long Island, of all places, in 1980. Can you show me where it hurts? 
comfortably numb by Pink Floyd from that wall concert. Man! Well, you know, Jim, I can relate to this adolescent experience of, you know, growing into manhood and, and, go, and going to see shows is kind of a big deal, like a life-transforming kind of deal. I was all of 18, 19 years old when I started going to shows and, and covering them and actually getting paid to review them, which was a big deal for me, anyway. And... Um, when I was in Milwaukee going to Marquette University, I got to see a ton of shows. And I think the most formative experiences for me were that period between 75 and 78. The one that I wanted to highlight was um, Iggy Pop's tour behind the Idiot album, which he had recorded with David Bowie. Pop was uh, resurrected by his friend David Bowie. Bowie was a huge fan of Iggy and the Stooges and uh, basically brought him back into the rock world, the mainstream by helping him record a couple of albums, The Idiot in 1976, and then Lust for Life in 1977, and then following up with tours. On the first of those tours, Bowie actually played in Iggy Pop's backing band. So he was the keyboard player. They played a show on April 1st, 1977, at the Oriental Theater in Milwaukee, about a 1,500-capacity venue. In my guise as a kid reviewer, I got front row seats. I was taking photos, and I was reviewing the show. I was literally 20 feet from Iggy Pop. I was about 25 feet from David Bowie, who was seated behind Iggy <laughs> throughout the entire show playing. I think most of the people in that audience were there to see Bowie. I was there to see Iggy. I mean, Bowie was a nice, you know, a, a, you know plus, but uh, I wanted to see Iggy Pop, this guy I'd heard about for so many years, perform for the first time, and it did not let me down in any way. You know, the one thing that stands out about that show, Jim, Iggy, of course, was shirtless. Mm -hmm. But the, the tone of his skin, it, it seemed like ivory. I'd never seen anybody <laughs> so white in my entire life. Yeah. And that only enhanced the blazing image of his eyes popping out of that body. And, uh, you know, he's, he saw me um, up front taking pictures. I'm like a kid in a candy store, right? And he's... He's posing in front of me, like, okay, kid, I'm going to slow it down here for you so you can get a good shot, you know? Yeah, it's one yeah. of those weird moments that you never forget. Blondie, they were the opening act. This was a young hey. Deborah, Harry, and Blondie at that time. Uh, not many people knew about them outside of New York City, uh, but they were pretty memorable as well. But I, I just remember Bowie backing up Iggy here and Iggy doing Iggy things that, you know, I what he did there... He did many, many times in his career. I think he was the single best live performer I've ever seen. And Bowie enjoying it as much as any fan in the audience. You could tell Bowie was loving the fact that this guy was doing his thing in front of an audience and doing it well. And Bowie was very happy to be there as, as a, you know, an instrument of that, of that change from Iggy basically being over, his career being over, to a guy who suddenly re was reemerging in the spotlight, which he tr richly deserved. Here's a track from that tour. It's not from that particular show, but in, in 1977, he was debuting a lot of this new material that he was recording. Here's one of the tracks that he was playing on those 77 tours for the first time, Lust for Life from Iggy Pop on Sound Opinions. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, oh, Lord. That's 
Fine, fine pick, Mr. Cott. For my next pick, I am going to Maxwell's in Hoboken, New Jersey. I don't think any place, any single place in my life has shaped me more than that small club, perhaps 150 capacity. For years before I turned legal age, they had raised the drinking age just as I was in sight in New Jersey of being legal to 21. For years, Steve Fallon, the owner of that club, let me sneak in as a journalist, <laughs> mm-hmm. a fanzine writer. Uh, and there are any number of shows I could, I could uh, highlight from those years going to Maxwell's that sense of community in that small room and incredible music bringing us together. Often the feelies, some of my favorite shows I've ever seen. But I'm going with Husker Du. They started playing, uh, of the many times I saw them at Maxwell's, at 10 p.m. on December 31, 1984. And when they finished, a new year had dawned. And they played two sets. They were just incredible, because as much as we both love Husker Du, we have to admit that the uh, recordings from that era, while the songs are great, the production is just dreadful by Spot on SSD, one named engineer. You know, and, and the way that material came to life live, they had this giant set list, they tacked it on the wall, they just ran down everything. Much of it we hadn't heard before. These songs were incredible. Uh, one of the songs I hadn't heard uh, is what I'm going to highlight. But first, I have to tell the story after this incredible two or three hours of music. Uh, Steve Fallon lets most people filter out, and then there's an after party. And Bob Mould and Grant Hart, the guitarist and drummer, the twin songwriters, uh, are both wrestling fans, and they were men of considerable girth at that point. <laughs> they stripped down to their uh, briefs, and they wrestled. They were wrestling fans. <laughs> Bob later did music for pro wrestling. And we got to watch Husker Du not only play, but then wrestle, and I emerge, and it must be, I don't know, you know, four in the morning, five in the morning, and the sun is coming up over the Hudson River. I've parked on Frank Sinatra Drive, and all that's going through my head is this song I heard for the first time, again and again and again, New Day Rising. That's the only line of, of lyric in the New Day Rising, New Day Rising, and it's a new year, and I'm young, and I've seen the best show of my whole life until the next show I'll see. Best New Year's Eve moment ever. Unfortunately, we couldn't find the recording of that song from that show at Maxwell's, but here is a live version from 1987 in London. Husker Du with New Day Rising on Sound Opinions.
Let's Husker do with uh, New Day Rising. Jim saw them in a prime moment in their career. I'm going to leap ahead here. We've uh, we've been focusing on on our formative shows from the from the early days. I probably saw Husker do probably a dozen times in the 80s. They were definitely my favorite band of that era. Another one of my favorites was uh, Neil Young. Never let me down in a show. I've never seen Neil give a bad show. I agree. Uh, he did play several incredible shows as well. And uh, I think the most incredible of those was in uh, at the Horde Festival from 1997 at the New World Music Theater in Tinley Park, a very undistinguished venue that Neil nonetheless just played a fantastic show one hot, muggy afternoon. And the reason it was so fantastic, this, this storm blew in and the rain was literally coming in sideways underneath the pavilion. It, it was drenching everybody, lightning in the air. The clouds were hurricane-level black. It was just like, what is going on here? It, it, it truly looked um, terrifying. In fact, I don't ever recall being truly fearful at a show except for that one. It was one of those moments where you kind of think, you know, this could be really, really bad. And Neil Young and Crazy Horse are playing on stage and the one thing that was just amazing to see is that they never stopped. It was they, The rain was blasting them in the face. The, the, the weather conditions were, were getting worse by the second. There was floodwaters running down the aisles. The, 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 the uh, aisles kind of uh, cascaded down toward the, the stage, and the, those, um, those aisles were just filled with rushing water like a, a, a rapids, you know, in a river. And... Young and Crazy Horse just kept going and going. I just remember uh, the Jolly Roger flag on Ralph Molina's drum kit uh, <laughs> ripping in the wind, and it looked like it was, it, you know, you thought of a, a sinking ship. And there were moments where everybody started to panic. And then he looked at the stage, and Young is still playing. Okay, it's yeah. cool. We're still playing <laughs> rock and roll, folks. The power went out. The sound went off. Young and Crazy Horse are still playing. They must have been hearing a little bit of themselves through the monitors up on stage. We couldn't hear it in the audience, but they are still going, you know, they're still playing, rocking out, playing hard. What is the song they're playing when the hurricane-like conditions hit their peak? Uh, like a hurricane, of course. Um, of course. Even at half volume, they sounded absolutely heroic in that moment. Uh, the rain kept coming, uh, but no one was panicking anymore. And if these guys were crazy enough to stomp around up there with their electric instruments, the least we could do was stick around and cheer them on. And everybody started getting these big, goofy smiles on their face. I, started, I remember starting to laugh at a certain point. It was just so giddily crazy to be seeing this happen in front of us. And they finished the set. The rain dissipated. Um, and Neil walks off, and all he says is, Nice night. <laughs> and waves and good night. You know, just another day at the office for Neil Young and Crazy yep. Horse. Incredible show. Here's a, We don't have a, a recording from that show because you probably couldn't hear it anyway, but at the moment, things got the absolute worst. Um, here's the song that Neil Young and Crazy Horse were playing, Like a Hurricane, on Sound Opinions.
Neil Young. Long may he run, Greg. One of our favorites of all time. After a break, we're going to share more memorable moments of live music from our careers. That's in a minute from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and we are reliving in lieu of being able to go see live music right now, some of the most formative, uh, most inspiring, best concerts we have ever attended. Greg, for many years, we were competitors at the Chicago Sun-Times and the Tribune, so we didn't we didn't sit together, we didn't talk to each other at shows. <laughs> mm. We wanted to have our takes, but I know that uh, I think I got my list in first. I know you must have been jealous when I claimed... Kraftwerk at the Riviera mm-hmm. Theater in 1998 before you a had a chance show. to do it. What a show. I did see you posting about it on social media to mark the death of the band's co-founder, Florian Schneider. He had left the group in 2008. He died mid-April of this year at the age of 73. What was so special about that Kraftwerk show is they had not toured the U.S. in many years, in decades. They were coming back after a period of just silence, when they were converting everything that they had ever recorded from analog to digital. But in 1998, they came to Chicago, and they actually transported the entirety of their Kling Klang studio from Dusseldorf to the United States for these shows. They were still performing live on analog synthesizers. Now, they have performed since. They continue to perform but it's all digital laptops, and it's four guys standing on a stark stage with a little laptop in front of each of them. Then they had this thing that looked like the console of the Starship Enterprise with the Moogs, <laughs> the mini Moogs, all of that equipment, and what was super memorable, this is in the middle of one of the Bulls' championship runs. There was a game that night, and everybody in Chicago, almost everybody, stayed home to watch TV it was the hardest of hardcore music heads that went to the Riviera Theater to see one of the greatest concerts I've ever seen in my life. All of the hits that you would want from Kraftwerk played in real time. This is not digital audio you're hearing. And I interviewed Hooter, Ralph Hooter, the band leader, some years after, and he kind of scoffed. He said, oh, it was so silly. We brought all of this big, heavy equipment, and now we have everything on digit, you know, I was like, yeah, but that was what was special about it. We felt like we were in the middle of the song I'm going to play, The Man Machine. The men and the machines. We play the machines, the machines play us, they always said. This is from the New York show of that same tour, Kraftwerk, one of the most influential bands of the last half century, period. <laughs>
That is the Man Machine from Kraftwerk, uh, the Riviera in 1998. I have fond memories of the night the Kling Klang Studios came to the north side of Chicago. That was awesome. I think the Bulls won, too, but who cares? <laughs> we were in heaven that night, for sure, to, to see the boys from Germany uh, for the first time. At least that, in my memory, that was the first time I saw them. Oh, me too. Uh, yeah. going to go from super elaborate uh, technology-driven uh, type of show to uh, one of the simplest that I've ever seen. Uh, solo performance, guitar, microphone, 25 people in a pastry shop on the north side of Chicago in 1994. I'm speaking of uh, Jeff Buckley's solo at a little coffee shop called Uncommon Ground. In February of 1994, a uh, winter storm was happening that night, and uh, it seemed like it was shutting the city down. Uh, I was on the 22 bus up Clark Street, and it took me about 90 minutes to get from downtown to Uncommon <laughs> Ground. Normally it takes you about 20 minutes. Yeah. And I walked in just a touch late. The show had started, and the windows were all fogged in, I remember. I was fogged in. I could barely see because there was so much snow outside, and I was adjusting to walking into the light of this place. And I was stunned, really, to see Jeff Buckley sitting, actually, about 20 feet in front of me, in front of the pastry counter, playing his songs. Now, at the time, Buckley wasn't exactly a household name. He just put out an EP a few months before that of solo acoustic performances, and it wasn't widely known yet. As I said, there was only about two dozen people in the uh, the little coffee shop that night to see this performance, but uh, I will never forget it as long as I live. Here's a Buckley uh, playing these songs in a kind of a intimate setting that was almost so intimate that you felt like a voyeur peering in on what he what was happening there on the makeshift stage, as it were. Here he is in this setting using his voice as an instrument alongside the electric guitar. And later on I got to talk to him and he cited people like Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan and Edith Piaf and Van Morrison as influences. And you could definitely hear it in the way he was transforming these songs into what seemed like reveries. The songs were like loose outlines rather than tightly scripted boxes for verse chorus kind of guitar solo uh, structures. His unconventional approach to arrangement extended to his choice of covers. What I loved was the way he would blend originals with these covers that kind of indicated some of his influences. So he was, he was weaving these songs, uh, these covers, into the performance, and it was just like a one continuous stream of music that was coming at you with this beautiful multi-octave voice creating this atmosphere that was absolutely mesmerizing. One of the artists I cited that he loved was Van Morrison, and he was covering some of Man Van Morrison's songs uh, during this little mini tour, acoustic tour that he was doing. Um, here's an example of what I was talking about. This is Sweet Thing from Van's Astral Weeks. Uh, Buckley did a version of it on the Live at Chenet record that had come out a couple of weeks before, and here's that on Sound Opinions. Sweet Thing And I will drive my chariot your streets and cry Well It's me I'm dynamite and I don't
gardens all misted wet with rain And I will never ever grow so old again Oh sweet thing Choice Greg going with Jeff Buckley caught at a moment where he is coming into his own. Similarly, I have my last pick is an artist who uh, suddenly uh, makes you realize the whole world is going to be paying attention to this guy mm. very soon. Mid February 2004, I had met Kanye West a year earlier at a common show telling me I better start paying attention to him because <laughs> he's producing all these tracks for Jay Z yeah. and Ludacris and Alicia Keys. And I was like, yeah, okay, sure. And he is about to release, or that very day, he has released his debut album, College Dropout. He's only 26. It will sell 60,000 copies that day in the Best Buys around Chicago alone. But what he did at the House of Blues that night is everything that would make him great, would make him one of the most significant voices in hip-hop of the next uh, two decades, really, and also uh, some of the pettiness. Uh, he was complaining that this other artist that he's never heard of uh, was going to debut at number one. It looked like he was going to only make number two. Nora Jones, he was talking about. Nope, nobody's ever heard of. Okay, but Kanye always had this ego. At this point, though, it was balanced. It, it, it was a sort of posing... Uh, from this kid who thought that he was never gonna get the attention he believed he deserved, and indeed he did. You know, his ambition musically and lyrically, his storytelling, that night when he is performing Spaceship, which most of the crowd had not yet heard, and he's talking about how he worked at The Gap and he didn't make enough money to even begin to realize his dreams. It barely covered the bus fare on the way to The Gap at the Evergreen <laughs> Plaza shopping mall in Chicago. And his talent was obvious. You know, there was a keyboardist. You were talking about Bowie backing up Iggy earlier. Mm. A keyboardist nobody had heard of yet at that yeah. time. His own debut album would not come out until the very end of that year. This is only February. John yeah. Legend yeah. is amazing. backing up Kanye. The hip-hop violinist Miri Ben-Ari was playing. I mean, he's already got orchestration. He's got the storytelling. He's got this incredible music happening. Common and Twista and all of the hip-hop royalty of Chicago's previous generation are filling the place. Many of these young kids who are in that audience are going to go on to make big news themselves, people like Lupe Fiasco. You know, it was a, a magical moment where you realize this guy is going to be huge. And, you know, he's done a lot to uh, discredit <laughs> mm. yeah. his public image, mainly through talking, not making music, saying dumb things. 
But, uh, you know, I think that Kanye will eventually be remembered when the noise dies down as one of the greatest innovators in the history of hip-hop, or really popular music. And that was the show and the tour that proved he deserved every accolade coming his way. Here is Kanye West back in 2004 at the Las Vegas tour stop of the College Dropout Tour. Kanye West at the start of his career. Greg, were you at that show? I was. You, you made a great point, too, Jim, about the fact that, you know, a lot of people remember Kanye primarily for what he's done lately. But it was amazing how on point he was in those first few years of his career, both, you know, in the recording studio and as a performance artist. Those concerts were really well thought out, well structured. The blend of live instrumentation and backing tracks was just extraordinary, I thought. Yeah, yeah, you know, those first five albums, man, I know yeah. where you're going for your final pick, and it's, uh, uh, like Neil Young earlier, I never saw a bad show by this guy. Yeah, you know, that's the thing about Prince. You and I have seen him many, many times. What I think I loved the most about those Prince shows over the years was that no two were ever alike. He was always changing the game up, always bringing in new elements, always swapping out songs in the set list, taking different approaches to the material. One day he'd be stripped down and playing, you know, piano. And other times he'd have the full orchestrated band with him and leading on electric guitar. To me, you know, Prince in concert is almost like a whole other book in his life. You know, you've got the studio recordings, which are amazing. But then to document all of those great tours and what he was doing on stage was equally amazing. And I think for me, I look back at his career, the greatest show I saw him perform, I think the one that if I had to point people to one show that I wish they could have been at to get the full on feeling of what Prince was all about in his prime was that 2004 tour. Specifically, I saw him in June at the um, Allstate Arena just outside of Chicago here. And the concert basically put all of his attributes in the spotlight. The singer, guitarist, showman, band leader. To me, the idea of not just Prince as a brilliant musician and songwriter, but the way he would lead a band. You know, I, I felt like we were seeing somebody like Duke Ellington or Count Basie mm. uh, leading their orchestra. You know, the way he would play the band as much as the songs or his instrument. And this particular tour was basically a survey of his musical career, deep cuts and hits, but also covers. So he was bringing in everything from like interpolating bits of 
Alicia Keys and Outkast and Beyonce alongside Archie Bell and the Drells Tighten Up or, or Rufus's Sweet Thing or Sam and Dave's Soul Man and even a bit of Louis Armstrong. So what he was doing here was bridging the masters of the past and today and basically putting himself in inside that pantheon. So the concert had three main parts. There was an opening 50-minute, like a medley, nonstop, just going through all these brilliant songs one after the other without pause. And he had a great band with him that night. Maceo Parker was on sax and this great, well-rehearsed group behind him that was uh, basically attentive to his every move. And then at the end, there was this huge kind of dance party vibe where he really opened up the show brought people on stage to dance, and it was just a big dance party at the end. But the thing that was most intriguing about that evening for me was the mini set in the middle where he came out on stage by himself to just play 20, 25 minutes of music with just himself and a piano or a guitar. And that, to me, was the real highlight of the show. Here's Prince unplugged, entertaining these 20,000 people, and it was just stunning how confident he was but also how virtuosic he was in that setting the perfection of those songs and also the casual almost conversational vibe he brought to it that sense of intimacy the way he was able to bring those people close to him and he was digging deep he was he was not just playing the hits he was playing these deep cuts the track i want to play is 17 days acoustic from that tour which illustrates what he was doing in that setting Here's Prince with 17 Days on Sound Opinions. Been gone 17 days, 17 long nights. The main track is knowing that holding someone else tight. I want to call you every day and beg you to be near me. with 17 days so many incredible print shows greg indeed jim and uh now that we've shared some of our favorite concert moments it's your turn what show changed your life forever call us at 888-859-1800 and tell us the story when we come back we're going to share our opinions on they call me disco by rick wilson and terrace martin and jim will remember tony allen 
That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRogatis. And that's a little bit of Breaking Rules by Rick Wilson and Terrace Martin from their They Call Me Disco project. So Rick Wilson, he is a Chicago-based hip-hop artist. Like many of his contemporaries, came up through the Young Chicago Authors Series, the Chicago-based storytelling and poetry organization, which helped launch the careers of people like No Name and Saba and Jamila Woods and Chance the Rapper. And Rick has put out a handful of singles and EPs since 2017. Last year, he played the Pitchwork Music Festival, and uh, to my mind, it was the best performance of that weekend. He is a dynamic live performer. He's collaborating on this latest project with a Grammy-nominated multi-instrumentalist named Terrace Martin, who's been around since the 90s. He's released six albums and has worked with people like Kendrick Lamar, Kamasi Washington, Snoop Dogg, Layla Hathaway, Herbie Hancock, Robert Glaspar. There's a heavy jazz vibe in in a lot of his work as well. We're going to play a track from the new EP called They Call Me Disco before we review it. Here's Don't Kill the Wave from Rick Wilson and Terrace Martin on Sound Opinions. If you, if you've got no rhythm, baby, get about the wave. Don't kill the wave. Uh, uh, uh. If you if you got no rhythm, baby, get about the wave. Don't kill the wave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh. Remember sliders the kickbacks with no invite. You was buck out of luck if you had no ride. They would shoot up the feet just to fight outside. Shorties cried, sick and cried next day. I I don't have when the photo flow hit the flow. Real ones get low, lames hit the dough. Not tight over this shit that we never knew. Hang loose like a Tracy McGrady suit. Hmm, fabulous, so good. Why you move stores ambulance in the hood? Foot working through the crowd with an Afro pick. I'm the, I'm the disco Kaepernick. And every night is the night of our lives. The day that we woke means somebody died. So even when home, we pull up like vacation. Home of the Duke Footwork House Station. Don't chase the wave. We make the wave. Get out the wave. Get out it. Cause we don't chase the wave. Rick Wilson and Terrace Martin, Don't Kill the Wave, They Call Me Disco is the title of the EP. Greg, I, I don't dance. I don't dance. It's not a, a pretty sight. But at the same time, I am welcome at his dance party, even if I'm uh, clumsily just nodding along on the side. This is a celebratory, life-affirming wonderful collection of six tunes. It is a perfect EP, beginning to end. Right length, no fat. He knows his musical history, drawing the lines nonstop between what was disco and what, you know, what is funk and what is house music and and celebrating all the time, but with social conscience that you have to listen a couple of times before you realize that this is a man who understands the good and the bad of Chicago. In that song, Chicago Bay, he says, let me show you 
all the city that the commercials never see. I can show you all the places I would be, all the homies that I got, who my highest luxury. Let me show you all the city that commercials never see. I'm a be Chicago Bay when you stumbling in these streets, baby. It is not overtly political, his his music, the way that, say, Kendrick Lamar is, right? Mm -hmm. But it is, I'm going to celebrate what's good, and I'm not ignoring what's bad, but let us focus on the good and move forward. You know, uh, in many ways, uh, They Call Me Disco and that Angelica Garcia record we reviewed a couple of weeks ago, episode 749, Cha Cha Palace, I've been finding a lot of inspiration in great dance music to keep me going during these dark times. And, and Rick Wilson's a genius as far as I'm concerned. I couldn't agree more, Jim. Rick Wilson, he says, you know, they call me disco. Well, you know, he's not kidding around. He loves dance music. He loves to dance. He's a great dancer. This six-track, 17-minute EP uh, does a trick, uh, you know, blending funk, house, a little Quiet Storm R&B in there as well. Oh, yeah. You want to dance, he came to the right place. He's capable of going deeper lyrically. You touched on that. I think we heard a little bit more of that on the earlier EPs. But what I like about this is not only the breeziness that comes along with it, it's the groove. Terrace Martin, I think, deserves some credit for that as well. The the notion that it's not just about those pounding four-on-the-floor drums, but that uh, disco and dance music can be uh, a little groovier, a little more swinging. And the drum beats don't necessarily have to be super emphatic to still get you moving. You know, I love the way he forefronts the bass in Don't Kill the Wave in combination with those sci-fi keyboards. When he does get introspective, a song like Before You Let Go, he's establishing an emotional connection. She said she never had nobody ask her about her day. She said she never had nobody ask about her day. Even smiling still, asking if it went okay. Pick her brain, asking questions that ain't just mundane. Understand when they wrong and they not afraid. You know, it's kind of like this little empathetic mm. statement about we we can find common ground here. Let's find a way to be together, and it, it doesn't have to be this heavy thing. I think there's a lightheartedness to this record that really underlines the mood. And to me, Rick is on the verge of doing great things. I think he's he's sort of filling in the the gaps in what people know about him and saying, here, I'm capable of this and I'm capable of that over these EPs and singles that he's putting out. And I'm waiting for that full-length album to come out, which he's been working on for about the last year, to really establish him as a, as a true giant in this emerging wave of young artists from the Chicago hip-hop scene. From Abekuta City. Translation to original English. That is a little bit of a song called Roforofo Fight by Fela Kuti in 1972, featuring the incredible, groundbreaking drummer and musical director for Fela's big band, Tony Allen. 
we have had a tremendous season of loss of late. We have talked about the passing of Florian Schneider, of Kraftwerk, and Little Richard, of course. Andre Harrell, giant in New Jack Swing, founder of Uptown Records. We lost Betty Wright, the R&B singer, and Matthew Seligman, a bass player for Robin Hitchcock's Soft Boys, as well as the Thompson Twins and Thomas Dolby. I'm going to take a minute to pay uh, some tribute to a lesser-known name, but a huge influence. Tony Allen, as I said, was the musical director and the drummer for Fela Kuti's uh, groundbreaking bands of the 70s, Afrobeat, putting down an entire genre that fused funk and jazz and native African styles alongside the great Nigerian singer and songwriter Fela, really driving that band and introducing, I think, the West in a big way to the concept of polyrhythm. It has been said of Tony Allen that often he sounded like four drummers playing at once. And the obligatory reference here, no less an authority than Brian Eno said perhaps he was the best drummer in the world. One of the things I find really inspiring about Tony Allen, I met him when he was well into his late 70s touring with The Good, The Bad, and The Queen, that super group that Damon Albarn of Blur put together. This is a man who never stopped making music literally until the day he died. Many people tried to describe what was special about his drumming. He himself only ever said, I want you to listen to it like you would watch a flowing river. That idea of many things happening at once, bringing together a world of music in a couple of a couple of drums. He said, you got to use all four limbs. And certainly the influence went way beyond rock or pop or funk. We had Timbaland and Missy Elliott sampling him, Common, Fatboy Slim, Beyonce. I think as time goes on, people are going to realize more and more and more that there probably was no greater drummer in the last 30 years. As I said, made music almost until the day he died at the age of 79 in Paris on April 30th. His solo album, The Source, came out in 2017. His last track, appropriately enough, I think sums up the attitude with which he approached life. Life is beautiful. In tribute to Tony Allen. Tony Allen from his final solo album, the track Life is Beautiful, 
one of the great all-time drummers, dead at the age of 79. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to dig deep for some buried treasures, some great songs underneath the mainstream radar that we think you need to hear. You can download Sound Opinions wherever you get your podcast thingies. The show is produced by Brendan Banizak, Alex Claiborne, and Andrew Gill. And a special thanks to Dave Miska and the engineers at WBEZ, working all alone there in the control room to keep us on the air. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. Hey, how you doing? Sorry you can't get through. Why don't you leave your name and your number, and I'll get back to you. New messages. Hey, what's up, guys? This is Mike from New York City. Uh, sorry I haven't checked in in a while. I've been very busy listening to all the Sound Opinions uh, episodes. I've just finished... Uh, 2008. But I actually called uh, to talk about your recent episode about historical songs. One that came to me was uh, The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll by uh, Bob Dylan, uh, which is actually a very uh, poignant song even today about the disparities between how a, a black person or a white person uh, is treated in our justice system. With rich, wealthy parents who provide and protect him. In high office relations in the politics of Maryland Reacting to his deed with a shrug of his shoulders And swear words and sneering in his tongue it was a-snarling And in a matter of minutes on bail was out walking But you who philosophize disgrace and criticize fears Take the rag away from your face Now ain't the time for your tears There you go. All right, I gotta go. I gotta go pick up on uh, the 2009 episodes. Uh, I'll call again soon. Bye. <laughs> Hi, this is Maxwell from Minneapolis. I was just listening to your show about history, and it made me think of Kishibashi's album, Omoyari, um, which is all about the internment camps of Japanese people in World War II in America, and especially the one song, F. Delano, which is sort of a referendum on one of America's most beloved presidents and one of the biggest mistakes he made. And uh, it's sort of a really happy, folky, powerful song about it. Love the show, guys. Thank you so much. Nightly occurrence, the men laughed it off like it was a boy to them. They were right. Feminine encounters were inside. F the Delano. Hi, it's Vicky in Chicago. The um, history songs, the Battle of New Orleans, you guys, better than a textbook. 
1814, we took a little trip along with Colonel Jackson down the mighty Mississippi. We took a little bacon and we took a little beans and we fought the bloody British in the town of New Orleans. Come on! It was a great show tonight. We looked down the river and we see the British come And there must have been a hundred of them beating on the drum They stepped so high and they made the bugles ring We stood beside our cotton bales and didn't say a thing We fired our guns and the British kept a-coming There wasn't as many as there was a while ago We fired once more and they began to run in On down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico Hey guys, Connor Taft calling from Lawrence, Kansas. Just heard your episode about uh, historically relevant songs. And uh, I want to put in a plug for John Coltrane's Alabama, which uh, came out shortly after the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham that killed uh, the four little girls. And it's rumored that uh, the melody of the song was supposed to mirror the cadence of Martin Luther King's eulogy for those four girls uh, that he gave at their funeral. And so very, very powerful song, very, very stirring musically. So thanks again, guys. Keep up the great work. Give us your opinions on Sound Opinions. Call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.